The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Immunotherapy at the Cutting Edge of Resectable Esophageal GEJ Cancer, preparing thoracic surgeons and the broader multidisciplinary team to navigate changing standards of care. Featuring Dr. Ronan Kelly from Baylor University Medical Center in Dallas and Dr. Daniela Molina from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash KZR860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, and welcome to Immunotherapy at the Cutting Edge in Resectable Esophageal Gastroesophageal Junction Cancer, preparing thoracic surgeons and the broader multidisciplinary team to navigate changing standards of care. My name is Dr. Ronan Kelly from Baylor University Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and I'm here today with my colleague, Dr. Daniela Molina from the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. So let's get started. Unfortunately, esophageal cancer is the seventh most common cause of cancer-related death worldwide. And we are seeing increasing incidences here in the United States with 19,000 new cases expected in 2021 and 15,000 deaths. We see a 2.4-fold higher incidence rate in men than in women. And patients often present with advanced disease. Unfortunately, those patients can have resistance to some of our best systemic therapies as a result of histologic, molecular, and etiologic heterogeneity. Um, if you look at the incidence, unfortunately, the majority of patients, 32% in the regional, 36% in the distant, uh, are, are presenting with quite advanced disease. And that obviously then impacts the five-year survival rate with really an unacceptably poor rate of five-year uh, survival rate at 5% in distant metastatic disease. And we're trying to improve that. And really, I think the, the immunotherapy strategies that have come to the fore this year are helping us to improve that. We're also seeing improved outcomes in patients with earlier stage disease. And today we'll talk a lot about Checkmate 577, which has resulted in adjuvant nivolumab being approved post-resection. So let's have a brief look at the mechanisms of checkpoint inhibition. I think all of the surgeons on this meeting will be very aware because they're also thoracic surgeons for lung cancer. And they've seen their medical oncology colleagues using a whole host of checkpoint inhibitors in the metastatic lung cancer setting. This year, 2021, has been absolutely transformative for esophageal and gastroesophageal junction cancer because we've seen four FDA approvals over the span of a couple of months, which has completely changed the landscape in how we treat metastatic and now in the adjuvant setting post-resection. Here on this schema, you can see, of course, how some of the PD-1 inhibitors like nivolumab and pembrolizumab are targeting that PD-1, PD-L1 access to prevent the tumor cells from suppressing the immune cells that may be in the nearby vicinity. Some of the PDL1 inhibitors are called avelumab and dervalumab, but there's really a whole host of checkpoint inhibitors that are being explored in these particular tumors. One thing I would like to point out for our thoracic oncology colleagues is when they're at those tumor conferences and those tumor boards, they'll hear the pathologist talking about PDL1 expression. There's one big difference I want to highlight. In lung cancer, we really look at PDL1 expression on the tumor, and that's tumor cell membrane staining. And that's called TPS. But if we look at esophageal cancer, GE junction, and even gastric, we don't think that the tumor PDL1 staining is as important. And it's really the staining on the nearby immune cells. And that's why we've created something called the combined positive score or CPS, which is another way for looking at PDL1 expression. But here you'll see the definition. CPS is equal to the number of PDL1 staining cells. So that's the tumor cells the lymphocytes and the macrophages divided by the total number of viable tumor cells in the, in the, the slide multiplied by hundred. And so then our pathology colleagues are able to give us a CPS score. And really what we've seen is the combined positive score in esophageal cancer, people are benefiting if it's greater than or equal to one. Now you might say how many patients are in that category? Roughly, I would say around 60%. So you can see 57% on the slide, but 60% is a nice easy number to remember that are about CPS greater than 1%. Unfortunately, the patients, uh, the other 30, 40% are not 
in the category where we're seeing dramatic responses. And you can see here a slide of PDL1 negative, which is a cold tumor, and then of course a PDL1 positive tumor uh, staining nicely brown there on that slide. So let's have a look at today's agenda. Uh, I'm going to start off with a brief recap on why I've been terming 2021 as an amazing year, really a transformative year for immunotherapy and advanced or metastatic esophagogastric cancers. As I said, four FDA approvals. We've never seen anything like that before. There's never been a year like this in our disease type. And then myself and Dr. Molina will have a conversation about uh, how all this impacts the thoracic surgeon and their interaction with the medical oncologist on when we use immunotherapy and how it's changing the standard of care for patients with resectable disease. We'll talk about Checkmate 577, which has resulted in FDA approval for adjuvant nivolumab. And then Dr. Molina will give the surgical take on where she feels we're headed with immunotherapy. And we'll discuss some of the, the clinical trials for you to keep an eye on that we'll probably read out in the near future. So let's start with this uh, first part of the agenda, why we think 2021 has been a transformative year for immunotherapy for patients with advanced and metastatic esophagogastric cancer. And I realize I'm talking to a, a surgical group they may not spend a huge amount of time looking at the metastatic data, but I just wanted to point out three trials, which I think would be very good to know because they've totally changed the paradigm on how your medical oncology colleagues will treat patients with inoperable disease. The first one here is called Checkmate 649. This is a, a, a paradigm changing trial. You can see over 2000 patients with inoperable advanced or metastatic gastric or GE junction cancer. This did not necessarily enroll um, uh, patients with squamous cell carcinoma. These were all adenocarcinomas. Um, and if we just look at the red box, the trial basically asked the question, can we improve over the standard chemotherapy, which has been a platinum-based doublet fault box, CAPOX or Zelox? Can we improve on that by adding nivolumab? with chemotherapy. And the primary endpoint here you can see was overall survival, progression-free survival. And initially they were looking at PDL1 positive patients, but the FDA have approved this for all comers, regardless of PDL1 expression. And then you can see some of the secondary endpoints. Here you'll see the primary endpoint of the study, which was in uh, a population that was CPS. So that combined positive score PDL1 expression greater than or equal to five. That occurred in 60% of the patients that enrolled in this study. And you can see the median overall survival was 14.4 months versus 11.1 months, hazard ratio 0.71. What I will tell you is, and this, we don't show the slide here, is the FDA have actually approved it in all comers regardless of PDL1 expression. And this has become the new standard of care in metastatic disease, where now your oncology colleagues. Um, they do not need to know the PDL1 score. However, it's good to know it. But in patients who don't have any contraindications to immune checkpoint inhibitors, they will now be given chemotherapy plus nivolumab as a result of this practice changing study. I will tell you, it's the first time we've ever broken through the one year median overall survival barrier of 12 months. So that's exciting. We're now breaking through that glass ceiling, which has hindered us for trial after trial over many decades. The other study in this space, as many of you know, the only targeted agent that we've really had in esophageal and gastric cancer is we look for HER2 expression. And if patients were positive, historically, we've given Herceptin or Trastuzumab to those patients. So this study, Keynote 811, was just looking at those 20% of patients that are HER2 positive with gastric esophageal cancer. So you have to be HER2 positive. And they simply asked the question, well, if the historical treatment is chemotherapy plus trastuzumab, what happens if we add a checkpoint inhibitor onto that backbone? And the primary endpoint was overall survival and PFS. So here you'll see the data. Now we don't have Kaplan-Meier curves to show you because the FDA has approved this regimen before any of us have really seen all the data. The FDA clearly has seen all the data themselves. It just hasn't been presented at a, at a national meeting. So we're waiting for that. But we have seen the top line data. You can see the overall response rate was significantly better at 74.4% versus 
versus 51.9%. I mean, we've never seen response rates like that in this patient population before. And then you can see the disease control rate, 96.2% versus 51.9%. So clearly the FDA have seen all the data. They have approved this regimen. It's now in the NCCN. It's now FDA approved. Doctors are using this uh, now for any patient that can come in with HER2 positive disease. And I just thought this was another trial to show you that's practice changing uh, as we await the full uh, publication and disclosure of all the data. And then the final practice changing trial out of these three in the metastatic setting was with pembrolizumab in Keynote 590. Similar trial to the, the first trial I showed you, a couple of key differences. You can see here, all patients had uh, advanced unresectable or metastatic disease. So they could either have esophageal adenocarcinoma or esophageal squamous cell carcinoma. That did not happen in the first study. Um, and the, the trial really didn't, wasn't a gastric study. It was esophageal down to the first part, the CWR type one GE junction. So those were the patients enrolled in this trial. Um, you can see that the, the, the design was quite similar to what we've shown already. It was comparing chemo plus chemo with the addition of pembrolizumab to see if the addition of the checkpoint inhibitor improved overall survival and progression-free survival. And of course, because it's FDA approved now, it was a positive study, another positive phase three trial. You can see the median overall survival. This is it now in all comers, not, not enriching for any PDL one score, 12.4 months versus 9.8 months. If you do enrich based on, you know, again, CPS, PDL one score, you can see the numbers go up. It goes up to 13.9 months. And the response rate there was 45%. So really three practice changing trials. We just wanted to show you at the very start of this meeting, which have completely changed the landscape for um, esophageal and GE junction as well as gastric cancer. There was one other trial, which we haven't, uh, hasn't received FDA approval yet. It's called Checkmate 648. This was in a purely esophageal squamous cell carcinoma. And what I'll tell you is we have seen a huge number of trials just recently at ESMO, all in the esophageal squamous cell coming out from China with lots of other PD-1 inhibitors that you may not have heard about, and they're all positive. So basically the take-home is esophageal squamous cell carcinoma is, is probably more sensitive than even esophageal adenocarcinoma. And we've now in the United States seen trial after trial positive, and then a whole host of other ones coming from China that are all positive with the same design, a PD-1 inhibitor from a different company plus chemotherapy. It's the new standard of care. And so all patients will likely receive an immune checkpoint inhibitor in metastatic esophageal adenocarcinoma, metastatic squamous cell carcinoma, GE junction, and gastric cancer. So that's why it's been such a transformative year for us in medical oncology. Uh, and here you'll see on that study, some of the overall survival uh, in the nivolumab plus chemotherapy versus chemo alone. So here's where I put now uh, the landscape of advanced or metastatic disease, certainly in the United States. In the first line setting, as a result of Checkmate 649, anyone with gastric cancer, unless they have some contraindication to a checkpoint inhibitor, will get nivolumab plus chemotherapy. If you've got esophageal cancer, esophageal squamous cell carcinoma, down to CWRT1, GE junction, you have a choice. You can use pembrolizumab, which is another PD-1 inhibitor, and a chemotherapy backbone. And then in the oncogenic driver group, that HER2 positive group, which historically is about 20% you know, of our patients, you now give four drugs. You, give, you still give the trastuzumab or the HER2 targeting drug, with chemo and you add pembrolizumab on. So completely changed our landscape and it's been probably the most important year in the history of, of treating esophageal gastric cancers because of all of these FDA approvals. Then in the second line, if somehow someone escapes not getting a checkpoint inhibitor in the first line, you can give nivolumab as a second line agent or pembrolizumab, or we actually have tumor agnostic approvals by the FDA if they've got mismatch repair deficiency or tumor mutation burden high, which we declare as greater than 10 mutations per megabase. And then finally, some of you may say, well, did the FDA not have an approval for a checkpoint inhibitor in the US in the third line metastatic setting? They did, but they removed that indication at an ODAC in April. 
So we do not have pembrolizumab approved anymore in the third line setting. The FDA's thought process was people are going to get this in the first and second line setting. So they removed the third line indication, although there is an indication in Japan for nivolumab. So now I'd like to invite my colleague, Dr. Molina, to, to uh, join me for some of these discussions. And Daniela will actually lead the next section. And I'll hand it over to Daniela to take it from here. Thank you, Ronan. Uh, I think that this is uh, really exciting for all of us that treat this disease. Um, and uh, I uh, think that it is awesome that we finally have more options for patients, uh, not only in the metastatic setting, but hopefully more and more also for the patient with locally advanced esophageal cancer. So we'll have a little bit of a conversation and we'll talk about a case specific and uh, hopefully help everybody to you know, think about the future of treatment of these patients that is very different than it was in the past. Now we can actually look at the patient and think about targeting our treatment to the specific case rather than treat everybody the same. And so th I think this is very, very exciting for all of us to treat esophageal cancer. So why thoracic surgeons should be involved early uh, in uh, the uh, understanding and the use of treatment with immunotherapy in these patients. Well, first of all, you know, with esophageal cancer, um, surgeons have been involved very early in the treatment of this disease because surgery does the heavy lifting of cure for the esophageal uh, cancer. And uh, although more recently, a paradigm of multimodality treatment has been used with really some advancement in terms of improved care. However, for many, many years, uh, all the trials on adjuvant setting uh, really have been disappointing. And so after the patient come back with uh, long treatment with chemotherapy, radiation, then surgery, and still have residual disease, so show some resistance to treatment, really we didn't really have much to offer to this patient rather than wait and see and uh, hope that they did not progress or they did not recur. So I think that this is great that now finally as surgeons, after we do operate on the, the patient, we see them back uh, recover from their operation. We actually have something else that we can offer. Uh, in the United States, I think um, most centers use a, a chemoradiation protocol for induction treatment. Uh, before doing surgery. However, we'll talk a little bit more later on when we discuss cases about other options that I think in the future might become prevalent and are important for, for treatment of the patients in a more targeted way rather than uh, using cross on everyone. Now, sometimes we use perioperative chemotherapy for treatment of this patient uh, rather than chemotherapy and radiation. I think we'll discuss a little bit when uh, should we use that regimen instead. And, uh, um, and then, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about can we use immunotherapy uh, even earlier in the uh, process of uh, treatment of esophageal cancer? So bring it even uh, in the uh, new adjuvant setting and not just after uh, treatment with surgery. So let's go to the case. And this is your standard esophageal cancer patient, uh, 75 year old uh, with dysphagia a big tumor circumferential with um, you know, extension about four centimeter at the distal location. So distal esophageal uh, location. Patients were staged clinically with, uh, as you can see here, a PET scan and a US, and uh, the tumor was staged as a T3N1, which is like the most common uh, staging that we see in these patients. Um, SUV about 11.9 on the tumor itself. And often this patient have other comorbidity. Now this patient has a long history of Barrett's esophagus. And uh, however, although he was in surveillance, still progress uh, in between the surveillance endoscopy. And then he has some atrial fibrillation, some COPD history of smoking. So that's your typical patients uh, with esophageal cancer. So after we see the patient, often, you know, surgeons, we see them first um, and, uh, and then, you know, we discuss the case in a multidisciplinary setting uh, with the medical oncologist uh, and how, how are we going to treat this patient? What are we going to tell the patients that that's uh, the approach we're going to use? And so there's a lot of uh, things that maybe uh, Ronan, uh, we can discuss. So 
when I see a patient like this, I always think about, you know, is this a uh, more tumor involving the EG junction and more on the stomach side, or is that more involving the esophagus side? Should we use flat chemotherapy, only perioperative chemotherapy, or should we use a regimen with chemotherapy and radiation? And a few things I wanted to think about and discuss. So first of all, I think it's important to think about from a surgical perspective. In surgery, when it's well done, when it's a uh, op optimal oncological treatment, um, you know, if unless the tumor is very bulky or involving uh, structures that we might be worried about not being able to resect, we can do a pretty good job with local treatment, especially when the tumor is located in the distal G junction and proximal stomach. Now, when you go up towards the esophagus in the mediastinum, uh, and there's no cirrhosal coverage of the esophagus and a lot of very vital structures around the esophagus, uh, obtaining a, a complete resection, we call an R0 resection, might be more difficult. And those are the considerations that I do when I look at the PET scan, when I look at the AUS, thinking about, you know, can I do a good job just with chemotherapy alone, or should I use radiation in this setting? And what I'm worried about is that sometime, and maybe Rona, you can comment on that as well. When we use chemotherapy and radiation regimens, sometimes we kind of cut a little bit on the chemotherapy side. And so patients might receive less chemotherapy or a less aggressive regimen because otherwise it's really hard to tolerate. Older patients also, you know, you have to put it all together, you know, how much treatment can older patient tolerate? And is that okay to try to give them all upfront? Or are we going to come to a point where surgery is not tolerated anymore? And that is the number one treatment uh, for patients with this disease. Uh, so I'm not sure if you have any comment about this. How do you, when you look at a patient like this one, what's your thoughts about, you know, using chemotherapy and radiation versus perioperative chemotherapy alone? You know, it's, it's the question that divides medical oncologists around the world in this regard. You know, certainly in parts of Europe, like the UK and Germany, they do favor using chemotherapy alone, whereas in the U.S., the majority of the medonks and radonks prefer to use uh, chemo radiation. Um, so, you know, the, 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 the question is what dosage of, radi of chemotherapy, excuse me, are you using? The, as you mentioned, the FLOT regimen is a three drug regimen. Um, there has been concerns about the use of the cross regimen, which is low dose carboplatin and taxol. And really that's radiation sensitizing doses, but it's, it's very well tolerated. So for our older patients, I think that's fine because we want to make sure they can get through all the treatment. But as you probably know, I know in New York and in some other places, we've started moving a little bit to increasing the dose of the chemotherapy with radiation. Radiation helps us, I think, achieve, and you'll talk about an R0 resection. It helps to clear out the lymph nodes. We've seen some data on that, which I think is important. But that's why we designed Checkmate 577, because we said, okay, are we giving enough of a systemic treatment? So let's try to maximize the systemic treatment that we can give. And as you know, those checkpoint inhibitors are systemic. They go everywhere. So I think the future, certainly in my practice, is we use slightly higher doses with radiation, not the chemo sensitizing cross, but now we're moving more to Falfox with radiation in those younger patients who we think can tolerate we still give radiation to get maximum local control. And then the, the surgeons obviously do their surgery. And if we don't have a PAT-CR, now we give adjuvant nivolumab, which we're gonna talk about. But that's certainly the practice that I think a lot of docs in the US have moved towards. Yes, and I, and I think that what is key here too, for everybody to really take home as a message is that we do not have to treat everybody the same way. And I think that's a very exciting uh, time for us to look at patients, uh, look at their preoperative um, studies and uh, really think about what's the best uh, treatment for that specific patient, not just in general. And, and on, at MMORA Sloan Cannon, we also moved away a little bit from uh, cross for all. And sometimes we still use it in the, um, in the right patients, especially, especially with squamous uh, type of cancers. But with adenocarcinoma, we do a more, um, you know, intense chemo regimen as well. Yeah, the other so, thing there to talk about is, uh, is the location. And I think you mentioned that if a patient has uh, 
gastric or seawork three, you know, I think there's no, I think most people say, let's just use perioperative chemo. You might want to mention some of the challenges if they do radiation there, but we, we give perioperative chemo alone. But if it's distal esophageal, upper GE junction, I think certainly my practice and a lot of people in the US has been chemo radiation still. Yeah, I think that is a very good point. Uh, for a pretty large extension of tumor into the stomach side, radiation would involve a large field, which can be very toxic. Uh, also, you know, we use the stomach to reconstruct the esophagus. And so there is a concern also about using a radiated stomach uh, that might um, cause some issues with healing or delayed, you know, dehiscence after the operation. So something definitely to consider. So I think it's important to look at the patient, to look at the cancer, to look at the location, and uh, come up with the plan uh, together with your oncology team that is the best possible plan for that specific patient. And so going back to this patient that we're uh, talking about, so he um, underwent uh, induction treatment with CROSS, and then uh, he had a good response so that we took him to the operating room and underwent a minimally invasive Ivor Lewis esophagectomy. Uh, the final pathology, uh, showed that there was still pretty much residual disease within the esophagus, but also within the lymph nodes. And uh, a very extensive lymphadenectomy was performed. So this is a good operation. I think that is very, very important for all surgeons. They are listening that uh, to remember that uh, surgery is also key to the treatment of this disease to do a very good oncologic operation. And then, um, you know, CPS score of five in this specific case, and then no other markers uh, for treatment. Uh, so what do we do now with this patient when it comes back to you for post-operative care and uh, is inquiring, you know, am I cured from the disease? You know, is there anything else that I should be doing and to make sure that the cancer doesn't recur? So I think we had already talked a little bit about uh, the issues of our zero resection um, it's, it's very, very important to, um, you know, although we don't know if our zero resection necessarily equal cure, uh, that it's important to obtain as well as possible an oncologic operation for these patients. But, you know, until a few months ago, really, patient would come back after this intense treatment, chemotherapy, radiation, big operation, although it's not minimally invasively, but we know our, our patient, you know, have a hard time to recover from this operation. And then they come back and they say, I, what happened? You know, there's still tumor in my uh, esophagus and the lymph nodes. Am I cured now from this disease? There is anything else to offer. And often, you know, I remember Dr. Kelly and I actually worked together when we we're both at a Hopkins. And I remember sometime calling him up and say, oh, it's pathology is really bad. Can we give him something, please? Can we give him some chemotherapy or something else? And we often, you know, is a debate of our DMT even now. I mean, Morris Lung Catering, where the oncologists would say, you know, the data don't support giving any adjuvant chemotherapy, which is uh, the truth. But now do we have something new? And I'm excited to hear from Dr. Kelly about the results of the Checkmate 577, which finally had given a surgeon some good things to discuss with our patients when they come back after surgery to say, you know, there is something more that we can do for you if the response to the initial treatment wasn't as good as we had expected. Uh, it is also important to look at the functional status of the patients. You know, are the patient completely recovered from their operation? Because, you know, the, there's a little bit of a stigma about the adjuvant treatment in all the old trials, when you look at the percent of patients that were able to complete uh, their adjuvant chemotherapy regimen, it's a very disappointing, maybe 30% at the best. So a lot of these patients after such a big operation are not able to go back and do more intensive chemotherapy. And so I think it is very, very important that we as surgeons are involved in their care and really decides when it's time for these patients to then start again and go on to receive more treatment because we want them to be successful. We want the treatment to be completed. And, and we'll talk a little bit about this with the Checkmate uh, 577 as well, that the data really show that potentially it doesn't really matter when you start, just wait for the patient to be ready and then start then the treatment. So I'm going to pass the word to Dr. Kelly uh, to talk about uh, you know, the, the new uh, paradigm for adjuvant treatment in this disease. 
Well, thank you. You know, you're not the only surgeon to give me a hard time that the, the, the surgeons in Dallas were doing that as well, because I, I totally understood it. It's like, well, they've got all these lymph nodes that are positive. Surely chemo should work. But unfortunately, trial after trial was showing it didn't help. In fact, it was probably hurting people because they were so weak after their esophagectomy and they weren't able to tolerate it very well. So that is the reason I think it was this gaping hole in the management of esophageal cancer, what to do in the adjuvant setting. And we used to debate this at every national meeting. That's why we decided to design Checkmate 577, which we'll explain now. Some of the background, as I just mentioned, patients are typically frail following surgery. There was no data indicating that the, there was a benefit from adjuvant chemotherapy. And of course, we knew that um, immunotherapy was well tolerated in metastatic setting. So we wanted to see, was there a role for adjuvant immunotherapy? Almost when you resect the tumor, you're dealing now with minimal residual disease. So the bulky tumor is gone, but could we now add in an immunotherapy drug to try to clear any micro metastatic areas that the surgeon doesn't see or that the imaging doesn't detect? And so we've done a little bit of preclinical experiments in the buildup to designing this study. Um, some of you may be familiar, there's a rat esophageal model where we can do a, bring the jejunum up to the anastomose to the esophagus. We bypass the stomach. As a result of that surgery, after about 30 weeks, all those rats develop esophageal cancer because now the distal part of their esophagus is being you know, washed with acid and bile. So it, it's not a perfect model, but it it's, does try to replicate what happens in humans, albeit at an accelerated manner. So what we did was we gave chemo radiation to those all those animals. You can see on the left, these are just some other checkpoint inhibitors we were seeing post in black. After neoadjuvant chemo radiation, there was a huge increase in all these checkpoint inhibitors. These are, again, designed to dampen down the immune response. Uh, but there's massive interferon release after we give radiation. So we wanted to see, did this last? And we saw, we saw here a PDL1 expression going way up after radiation in the animals, but then it decreased over a period of weeks. But the thing of course is with our patients, we give five weeks of radiation, but we can't re-biopsy patients post-radiation. We can't do another endoscopy in those patients for risk of causing them some damage. But you can see here now, we fast forwarded a few years. It took a many, it took a lot longer than we thought to do this study just because patients are so weak after an esophagectomy, but the top line is we did publish this in the New England Journal of Medicine on April the 1st, 2021. So just this year, um, showing that adjuvant nivolumab does improve outcomes. So what was the design of the study? Well, if we just look at the bottom schema, any patient with stage two or stage three esophageal or GE junction cancer was potentially eligible. And we didn't say you had to have adenocarcinoma or squamous, you could have either but everyone did have to have neoadjuvant chemo radiation followed by a surgical resection and it had to be an R0 resection. And then patients were randomized for up to 16 weeks uh, post-op to either get standard of care, which is close observation. So that's why we were able to give placebo or adjuvant uh, PD-1 inhibitor with nivolumab, which was given every two weeks for the first four months. And you might say, why do you want to see them every two weeks? Well, we just wanted to see them closely and make sure they were tolerating the treatment. And then after four months to round out one year, they could go to a, a larger dose every month for eight months to finish a year of adjuvant therapy. But it's a long treatment journey now for patients. If you think about it from, from diagnosis to getting chemo radiation over about five or six weeks to then waiting probably approximately eight weeks for surgery then having your surgery, then recovering, then you know approximately 10 weeks to start adjuvant therapy and then a year. So we are asking our patients to do a lot. We know that, but thankfully, I think I'll show you the data here. It's well tolerated and um, the benefits are certainly very impressive. So this was, this was also probably the largest randomized phase three trial that we've done in the adjuvant setting because it was a truly global study across 27 countries, and you can see there the number of study locations in, in four or five continents. So we did not mandate the surgery up front. We said, surgeons, please do whatever your surgery is that you normally do. We also didn't mandate what chemo radiation the patient should get. 
So that was all left to NCCN standard of care. But what we said is if your patient has not had a pathologic complete response, so if they have YPT1 or YPN1, then they're eligible. So we picked in many ways the patients with poor biology. If they were in the 25% that had a PATCR, which is what we normally see, they weren't eligible for the study. So only those 75% that didn't have a PATCR, they were the ones we wanted to look at for this study. And here's the patient characteristics. You can see the median age is in the low 60s, predominantly men, of course, 84% uh, were men. Um, the initial stage of diagnosis was 66% were stage three. You can see the breakdown between esophageal cancer and G junction was 60, 40. And then, you know, we don't see that much squamous in the US anymore. We do see much more adenocarcinoma, but this was a global study, but I was excited to see the adenocarcinoma was higher because it has really, you know, big implications in the US and Europe, certainly. And then you can see the other characteristics over here in terms of tumor cell, PDL one expression, pathologic lymph node status, and uh, pathologic tumor status at trial entry. So please have a look at those slides at your leisure. But let's look at the, um, at the primary endpoint. Now the primary endpoint is disease-free survival. Uh, the definition of disease-free survival is the time between randomization date and first recurrence or death, whichever occurs first. And this is a recognized endpoint in adjuvant studies. We are waiting for overall survival, but because it's an adjuvant study, it's going to take a few more years, you know, to get that. I expect we may have overall survival next year in 2022, but the FDA and the EMA and other regulatory authorities have recognized disease-free survival as an acceptable endpoint in adjuvant studies. And here you can see <coughs> what we have here on the right is the original data from 24.4 months of median follow-up that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, but we've added just a little bit of eight month extra data, uh, which we just presented at ESMO. And you'll see the hazard ratio as time goes by is actually improving. Um, it went from 0.69, which was the original data set to now just at ESMO 0.67. You can see we've doubled the median disease-free survival from 11 months to 22.4 months. And I think the, that control arm really shows that patients who don't have a PATCR really are in trouble. And I don't think we can just watch them anymore. We need to give them something because an 11 month disease-free survival is really poor. And you know we saw doubling with that. So that was an exciting result. As we wait for overall survival, we have looked at other efficacy endpoints. One of which is this slide which is distant metastasis-free survival. And the definition of distant metastasis-free survival is the time between randomization and first distant recurrence or death, whichever occurs first. So it's basically, remember at the start, we were saying we were a little bit worried about the cross regimen. It's a low dose chemo. Does it really prevent systemic disease recurrence, metastatic recurrence? So we've added this drug in to give that systemic option. And I think you can see clearly here again, the initial data set from the New England paper is 24.4 months, but now we've added just eight months of additional follow-up again. I think you'll see the hazard ratio is improving in the right direction. It's gone as we add more data, as we add more follow-up, 0.74 to 0.71, really a substantial difference in distant metastasis-free survival. You know, we're, we're improving that by, um, 29%, which is really quite substantial. And then the other endpoint, the last efficacy endpoint would show you is, is this one, which is um, progression-free survival too. And this may be an endpoint that the surgeons are not overly familiar with, but if you think what we're trying to do is alter the immune microenvironment in patients so that subsequent treatments work better, subsequent chemos work better. So the progression-free survival too is the time from randomization to progression after the first subsequent systemic treatment or initiation of subsequent systemic treatment. So basically is, are we making subsequent treatments work better as a result of what we've done to alter the immune microenvironment? And again, you're seeing that. So that's exciting for us because it may mean subsequent treatments work better. You can see here, we showed a 26% reduction uh, in the risk of recurrence or death, as we said just previously, 
but also in the progression-free survival too. We don't have the data for nivolumab yet, but it's 32.1 months, hazard ratio 0.77. So while we don't have overall survival, we do have to wait for that. Hopefully we'll have that next year. I hope you're seeing that at least a lot of the efficacy endpoints, in fact, all of them are, are going in the right direction and we'll see overall survival hopefully next year. What about the breakdown between histology? So here just shows you squamous cell versus adenocarcinoma. You can see um, in, in squamous, we had a tremendous difference in this bottom panel here. It almost trebled the median disease-free survival from 11 months to 29.7 months. I did say the squamous cell carcinomas are more sensitive to checkpoint inhibitors. We don't really know the reason why. Maybe there's more neoantigens, maybe the immune microenvironment's clearly a little bit different, but we see this in lung cancer and other tumor types. Hazard ratio for squamous was 0.61. But also I was very excited to see the benefit in adenocarcinoma, 11.1 months to 19.4 to months. And if we look at disease-free survival subgroups, you can see it favored nivolumab versus placebo against all of these pre-specified subgroups from sex, race, performance status, location, a GE junction at 0.8, esophagus at 0.61, adenocarcinoma, as we just showed you, um, and squamous were both benefiting, and tumor cell pdl one expression did not make a huge difference. Some of you will remember I mentioned CPS at the very start of this meeting, uh, the combined positive score. That was the post hoc analysis. We've published that in the New England. It does look like CPS plays a role, and we, you could please look at the... Uh, the New England paper to get more information on that. Um, and then final, oh, there you see it actually, CPS greater than five was better than uh, less than five. But this, these subgroups are not powered really to look at this, they're small numbers of patients, so we need a lot more information. And then uh, for the surgeons, a lot of people are wondering when's the optimal time to start post-operative. Again, what I would say is, please take this with a little bit of caution because they're not powered to look at when the optimal time post-operative to look at is. But you can see here, you would appear on first sight that less than 10 weeks and greater than 10 weeks, but they're not powered. I would say you can clearly see that the, the magnitude of benefit in both is certainly higher. It's, it's more than 10, uh, 10 months in, in each group. So I think what I would say here, Dr. Molina, is... Um, if you've got a fit patient who you've done a minimally invasive esophagectomy on, who has recovered very well, is very anxious to get started, I think it would be fine to start at seven, eight, nine weeks. I don't think we need to start it straight away. But if you have a slightly older patient who also is anxious, please tell them, look, you can wait because the most important thing is to get over your esophagectomy, to get used to the new GI transit time, to recover from your post-op pain and your wound to get your diet and your energy back. So I think um, hopefully that's helpful to our surgeons at the meeting here. And then finally, if we just look at the quality of life, because it's important, as I said, it's now a long, arduous journey, um, it was really reassuring to see that the majority of patients tolerated this very well. In fact, the patient reported outcomes revealed very similar overall health status between those patients that were on nivolumab and those that were getting placebo. I think you'll see the lines are almost superimposable, which means we really weren't causing that many uh, patients to have two uh, you know, serious adverse effects or severe toxicities. If we look at the NCCM, so they actually put this, uh, the role of adjuvant nivolumab now with category one evidence into the NCCM guidance. They actually did that last December. So in December of 2020, they put this in as category one data and you can see here anyone who has an R0 resection but has residual PAC disease, either for squamous or for adeno, the NCCN are putting this as category one data. Um, and then uh, the FDA formally approved this regimen um, in May of this year. So let me go back to Dr. Molina. I'll hand it back to you, Daniela, to go through the patient case again. Yeah, so uh, thank you so much, Dr. Kelly. I think it's uh, very, very exciting that uh, especially uh, to give this news to patients that their quality of life will be preserved because often, you know, patients are very, very scared about having to do more after they went through several weeks and months of treatment. So 
here it is, our 75-year-old gentleman, a little older with some comorbidity. He tolerated treatment well, but didn't get an excellent response. Yet recover from surgery very, very nicely without any complication. Now he comes back to you as surgeon. And it, I think the surgeon role is very, very important because as surgeon, we're very committed uh, in these patients. We, are, uh, we establish a relationship and they really look up to us. Uh, to uh, decide what is next, you know, in their treatment. And so I think that we really need to have an active role uh, to um, encourage those patients that did not have a complete response to consider uh, uh, to start treatment with adjuvant immunotherapy. Uh, so um, uh, adjuvant involvement would be the treatment and now is uh, also standard of care and NCCN guidelines for adjuvant treatment. Uh, as Dr. Kelly just shown, um, the quality of life is not really that much affected. It's not much different than placebo. So once the patient has recovered from surgery, whether it is sooner uh, on younger patient, healthier patient, they go through surgery without difficulties, a little later for older patients, this is an option that all patients have once they have recovered. So that is a very important I think message that we surgeons needs to be able to deliver to our patients and advocate for them to be treated uh, appropriately with this new uh, systemic type of treatment. But then I wanted to talk a little bit with Dr. Kelly. Uh, we don't use routinely cross. So often a patient tell me or ask me, you know, I did not receive cross induction treatment. Am I still eligible for this type of adjuvant treatment because, you know, we, especially Memorial Sloan Kettering, they use the CLGB803 kind of protocol with Falfox and PET directed type of approach to uh, chemotherapy and patients in the new adjuvant setting. And then if they come back still with residual disease, uh, are they still eligible? Can they still get immunotherapy in the adjuvant setting? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so we did not mandate up front what chemo people should get or what radiation, or in fact, what surgery they should get. Remember, we just took patients from, you know, 27 countries where the surgeons may do all slightly different things, you know, in terms of how they've been trained and what type of esophageal esophagectomy they want to do. So, um, but your question is very important because, no, it's not just restricted to the cross regimen. We did see about 75% of patients on the study did get the cross trial regimen, excuse me, carboplatin taxol, but that meant 25% got Falfox or CIS5FU. So absolutely, and the FDA approval does not mandate what type of chemo you get. So you, whatever your, your oncologist preference is for the chemo backbone and the radiation, of course, 41.4 grade to 50.4 grade, but your radiation colleagues will have their standard dose of radiation, that's NCCN guideline approved. And it's and then whatever type of surgery you want to do, but if your patient doesn't have a PAT-CR, then they're eligible. Yeah, well, I want to say that, uh, you know, maybe this is the time to, to say surgery is also important. So don't do any type of surgery, just do a really good oncologic surgery <laughs> with good uh, negative margins and uh, you know your two or three fields lymph noodle dissection because I wanted to uh, really stress that uh, surgery still does the heavy lifting for cure of this disease. So I think that's important. And uh, I want to also underline that radiation though is key. So if the patient only had perioperative chemotherapy, then they would not be eligible for adjuvant immunotherapy at this point. Uh, so they, they definitely needed to have had radiation and induction uh, treatment paradigm to offer them adjuvant treatment. Is that correct? Yeah, th that's correct. Now, um, you know, just to go back what I was saying, because it was a global study, you know, it's really hard to tell people in Germany or the UK or Australia or China or Japan to do the same thing. So, you know, that's why I was saying make sure they do whatever they consider in their part of the world is the best uh, surgery, but that, you know, you're absolutely right. Everyone had to have an R0 resection, which we defined as no vital tumor within one millimeter of all the margins. And, um, but yeah, we do not give perioperative chemo. That's not a, that we did not look at that in this study. There is a trial 
ongoing called Keynote 585, which you may mention in a few minutes, which is just looking at perioperative chemo. Um, now, I, 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 I'm obviously a little biased here. I think my, my, I don't know that we'll have to wait for the trial results. I just wonder in esophageal, does the tumor need to be taken out? You know, are, do we need to be dealing with a minimal residual disease status, you know, for the uh, immunotherapy to work very well? But we're going to find out, right? Because we've got all these neoadjuvant studies that are being are going on. We've got perioperative studies, but they're all going to be slightly different from 577 because remember, 577, the tumor was gone. So let's just see what happens when the tumor is still there. Does that make a difference? Exactly. Uh, and so um, I think that uh, it is important to, uh, you know, think about what is the future is going to be. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a second. Uh, but uh, here again, to summarize that um, the Checkmate 577 had a pretty good safety uh, um, summary for patients. So I think that for surgeon, this is very important to know that uh, once the patient are recovered and they go into a treatment with immunotherapy, uh, the side effects, the specific side effects to immunotherapy were not really severe to affect patient long-term after, uh, you know, during treatment. And uh, um, I'm not sure if you want to comment on, uh, on this slide. Well, really the reason why we, we looked at this data, Dr. Molina, is because we've never done a, uh, adjuvant study with immune checkpoint inhibitors before in early stage disease. So we wanted to see were the side effects from the drug the same as in the metastatic setting. And the answer is yes. We did not see any new safety signals. We did, And so here you can see the onset of some of these adverse effects. Uh, but the good news is if the medical oncologist uses the same treatment paradigms that they use in the metastatic setting, the majority of patients recover very well from the adverse effects. Okay, so um, we can uh, go on with the case. So I think patient did really well after uh, six weeks of adjuvant treatment with nivolumab. I just had mild rush as a side effect. Uh, and so, um, you know, this patient was treated in management and multidisciplinary uh, approach, which I think is very, very important uh, to have surgeons involved from the beginning in the treatment of these patients. So, uh, Dr. Kelly, maybe I'll pass the word back to you. So, how do you manage uh, when patients have side effects, though, for this treatment, which can happen uh, during uh, the adjuvant setting? Yeah, I, I would just say on this, um, the surgeons just need to contact their medical oncology colleagues. We're all very familiar with management of toxicities of the immune system, and we just follow management guidelines. So, there's algorithms which have been created, which we all follow. So, Nothing was unusual in this particular study. Very good. And so again, I want to say again how important it is to collaborate with your team, um, whether it is in a formal tumor board, uh, multidisciplinary clinics, uh, but it is really important for surgeons to be involved in this patient's care from the very beginning and then also after you know, all the treatment is uh, completed. Um, so I just wanted to skip to the future direction. So it is exciting that this treatment is really working well for patients, uh, minimal side effects and uh, hope uh, for increasing the rate of cure of this disease. But uh, as Dr. Kelly was saying earlier, you know, can we actually modify the way the disease respond to additional treatment in the future when we use this immunotherapy agents even earlier on in the treatment? And so... I don't want to go into specific of each trial here, but I think there are a lot of perioperative now uh, trials with uh, checkpoint inhibitors. And these are things are key because to move the use of the systemic treatment even earlier in the treatment paradigm of this patient, we might see even a better response because it might change the way that the entire you know, uh, future treatment given to the patient uh, might uh, have a uh, give different uh, answer and, and a better improved uh, response for patients. Uh, so I think there are several. We have our own uh, trial at Memorial Sloan Kettering. And what I wanted to underline, we just published our results in the surgical outcomes after treating, treating patients with the immune checkpoint inhibitors 
together with chemotherapy and radiation. And I want to encourage surgeon by saying that we did not see any increased side effects or any increase in the adverse event or in the complications after the operation in these patients. Also, um, there they weren't more difficulties during the procedure. The operation was pretty standard. Uh, we didn't encounter any uh, intraoperative difficulties or complications. So I think this is probably the future, and I'm looking forward to see what the future brings. Uh, there is a lot of trials going on, so the future is very active. Uh, Dr. Khal, do you want to add any uh, comment about all the trials that is happening right now that are happening all over the world, not just in the United States? No, a huge number of trials. What I will say, what we saw in Checkmate 577, is if the surgeon actively encourages their patient to participate in a trial, enrollment goes up two to one, which shows you the you know, the importance of the surgeon in this decision-making process. So please encourage your patients to participate in trials because that's how we're going to improve outcomes, I think, across the board. That's, uh, that's very good. So I think that uh, we wanted to conclude and then maybe have a little bit of time for question uh, to with underlining the importance of surgeons uh, early on in the decision-making process of treatment of esophageal cancer it is important that we participate directly with the patient's uh, treatment plans. Uh, we encourage our patient to participate in trials when trials are available, because this is really what's going to help us in the future have better options for treatment for them. And also, we should stay involved. We should stay involved throughout the entire course of treatment. I always check in with the medical oncologist, and we always kind of talk with each other about how is it going? How is the treatment going? Can we uh, modify, can we uh, deviate a little bit sometimes from standard, especially with the patient who's on a clinical trial, you have a little bit of options now to do a treatment that is targeted to the specific patient, not just treat everybody the same. And then, um, you know, we lose the game of this disease with systemic recurrence. So we definitely need better options for systemic treatment. But I want to remember, uh, remind again to all surgeons that we also need to do a really good optimal oncologic operation because for now, maybe things will change in the future, but for now, surgery remains a key uh, part of the treatment uh, process and plan for patients. Uh, so Dr. Kelly, do you wanna conclude? Yeah, no, thanks. So, I mean, I think we've spoken and everyone knows this, that esophageal cancer G-junction really requires a multidisciplinary team approach. And you can see here everyone from the surgeon to the medonc, radonc, GI team, the nurses, and, and everything in between in terms of pathology, nutrition, and palliative care. So I think it requires a, a village, but thankfully our patients, as a result of some of those practice-changing trials that I mentioned this year, that's why I'm so excited about 2021. It's probably been the most impressive year we've ever seen in terms of scientific and treatment breakthroughs for this terrible cancer. And let's hope the next couple of years are equally as exciting. So let's look at some questions. One question that came in is, did the dose of radiation affect disease-free survival? Um, the answer is no. We did not see that. Now, the majority of patients were all getting the same radiation dose, but we haven't seen dramatic differences in terms of disease-free survival according to what dose of radiation the patients got. Um, what type of surgery did these patients get? Well, um, you know, Dr. Malina, I know you're, you have a certain preference. Um, we did see a wide variety of surgery here, but the majority of those were esophagectomies. But again, you know, there was some gastrectomies, but really nothing that was uh, across the board different. I think, I don't know if you want to comment on the specific type of surgery patients should get here. Yeah, so I think that is, you know, in the past, if you look at the older trials, they're really not, uh, there is no standardization, the operative approach. And of course, this is an adjuvant trial, so it's a little bit different, but I really hope that for future uh, new adjuvant trials, we really also mandate some standards for surgical procedures, because otherwise it's a little bit hard to make them uh, take any results out of the, uh, this uh, data when different types of surgeries are done. And I think that uh, you know, there are very different ways of doing esophagectomy. And so there are some that are more oncological than others. And uh, I hope that in the future trials, we account for also surgical specifics 
points and uh, uh, standardize, standardize the procedures. You know, if I look across the study, it was 89% of patients in uh, had an esophagectomy, 8% in both treatment arms had proximal gastrectomy, less than 1% in patients had both groups had a distal gastrectomy, and about 3% of patients had total gastrectomy. So I don't know what to make of that, but just to show you there was a different slight yeah, difference. But- but it's not just that, you know, like esophagectomy means a lot of different operations. Right, right. And so, you know, you can do a transaeral esophagectomy where you don't really take any lymph nodes. Uh, you can do a three holes, a two holes, so and block. So I think it's very, very important to uh, mandate a little bit more standardization for these patients. And then, you know, of course, it depends, you know, where this, the tumor is located. Sometimes the entire stomach needs to be removed, sometimes just partial. Uh, amount of stomach or partial esophagus needs to be removed. So I think that those um, decisions are based, of course, on the location of the tumor as well. But I think oncologic resection with lymphadenectomy, uh, it's important. The next question is, is there a role of, this is the PDL one combined positive score. Now, um, the answer is probably yes. Um, as I mentioned, the study, we actually, because it was designed so many years ago, we were looking at PDL1 expression on the tumor. Uh, and then everything kind of moved towards looking at the immune cells, but the study was designed so many years ago, it hadn't really factored that in. So we did a post hoc analysis in the, in the New England Journal paper. Our, our reviewers asked us to do this. We did see a difference in terms of uh, those patients having uh, improvement if they were CPS score greater than or equal to five. However, PDL1 is a dynamic biomarker. And as I showed you in the RAP model, it goes up after radiation and it can go up after chemo. So I think we need to be a little careful. We can't just assume that the PDL1 expression that we're seeing uh, after chemo radiation is the same as what it would have been if before we even touch a patient. So I think a little bit more data needs to go into this. And I think all of those studies that Dr. Molina showed you will help answer that question about adequately selecting which patients should get this treatment. And then I'll just take this last one too, because it's really a look to the future. I would love Dr. Molina's uh, opinion too, but the role of circulating tumor DNA, we don't have great data. Um, Unfortunately in Checkmate 577, we did not take plasma on patients pre-op and post-op to look at CT DNA levels post-operatively to see if those were the most at-risk patients. Because I think we've seen now across multiple tumor types, colorectal, breast, that in patients who clear circulating tumor DNA post-op, their chances of recurring is much lower than in patients that still have circulating tumor DNA about three to four weeks post-operatively. So I think that is the future uh, for us. I think we may not be relying on some of the pathology parameters like numbers of lymph nodes and, and R0 resection. I think CT DNA will become increasingly uh, important in our decision making about who should get adjuvant strategies, and we'll probably optimize our strategies that those patients that are CT DNA positive, we may have to throw everything we have at those patients to to rescue them. But Dr. Molina, any thoughts on that? Yes. Well, I think that even uh, more important than that would be the role of CT DNA in uh, identified patients that might be. Uh, you know, complete responders and maybe surgery is not really even indicated in this patient. So again, taking what we've learned in the adjuvant setting and bringing it back into even earlier on in the treatment paradigm of uh, this patient. So we're not there yet. Uh, uh, we are, we don't have a strong platform for CTDNA measuring yet. We don't have really a lot of uh, clinical data uh, that uh, uh, we can use this to say, you know, your uh, treatment was so good that you have no residual disease. But I think that it's very, very important for us surgeon to, to take an active role on this aspect as well, because, you know, we, we love to operate, we love to do a good operation, but if it's not necessary, we definitely are the first one to say, we don't want to put patients through potential risks and potential uh, quality of life issues uh, in the long run when maybe surgery is not uh, indicated or, or useful. So, you know, this, this might be a key changer uh, player in the future. And uh, uh, so, and, you know, data will help us to decide when to use it 
and uh, how to use it to direct care um, in the patients with this disease. Yeah, absolutely. It's very exciting. We're going to be hearing a lot more about this in the next couple of years. And all those trials that you showed us are actively looking at CTDG. Yes. So we'll hear more about that. So I think we've run out of time. So I just want to say uh, thank you to Dr. Molina for joining me. I really enjoyed, you know, uh, your company today. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash KZR860. This activity is supported through an educational grant from Bristol-Myers Squibb.